I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And this morning, we are going to look at 1 John 5 verse 21, the very last verse of John's epistle, of his first epistle. And lest I forget to tell you, we will be headed into 2 John next week. So that I give you something to, to read and prepare for. Well, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help for this time. Oh, Lord, our God, Lord, your name is majestic and high and lifted up. Just as we have celebrated in song, you are our great God. And you are our God, Lord, not because we created you, but because you created us. You are the one true God. And we come to you, Lord, this morning needing to hear from you and just ask that you would help us to read your word with listening ears and attentive hearts. And Lord, that you would grant us the help of your Holy Spirit to apply these things to our lives. Help us, Lord, not to be those who, who hear the word but do nothing, who delude themselves into thinking that there's something when they're nothing. Help us to be doers of the word, Lord God, to hear with understanding and to obey your word. Tune our heart, Lord, to listen to your voice through the word of Scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we, we approach the end of John, we come to a very sobering topic this morning. In, in a sense, I thought it would be somewhat almost euphoric to preach on the last verse of 1 John, but I have found it very sobering. In a very short and penetrating way, John summarizes his complete epistle in one sentence. Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. We come to this very sobering topic of guarding ourselves from idols. Spurgeon once warned, and I quote, When some men die, the religion which they themselves have thought out and invented will yield them no more confidence than the religion of the Roman Catholic sculptor, who on his deathbed was visited by his priest. The priest said, You are now departing out of this life. And holding up a beautiful crucifix, he cried, Behold your God who died for you. Alas, said the sculptor, I made it. There was no more comfort for him in the work of his own hands. And there will be no comfort in a religion of one's own devising. That which was created in the brain cannot yield comfort to the heart. Unquote. John has a very penetrating way of closing his epistle. He abandons, just like he abandoned a a normal introduction, he abandons a normal closing by simply writing this. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We need to remember that this is in the context of the assurances that he he has just written. And just to get us into the, back into the context of this, I would like to read that. So I'm just going to begin in reading verse 13 of chapter 5. 
John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We're going to walk our way through this command this morning by looking at what the the command itself says. We must understand that you must guard yourself from idols. We're going to look at why God commands, so it gives us such a command to to guard us from idols. And then at the end, we're going to mention a few few points on how to guard ourselves from idols. So that's kind of the basic outline. The command itself, why God gives us the command, and then how to implement the command. Looking at the simple text, again, little children, guard yourselves from idols. We, we just need to be very clear on this, that we are called to guard ourselves from idols. You must guard yourself from idols. And I, and I just notice the, the, how he begins this, this verse very tenderly. John has a very... Um, I guess, God-given ability to pack a lot and a little bit and to tenderly say something that is quite hard. Little children. So by using this familiar phrase, he is, he is endearing himself to his readers genuinely. He loves them. He cares for them. And John has used this term many times as we've gone through this epistle. And I just, I just want to kind of recap it since we're at the end recap some of these for you first john 2 1 he says my little children i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous first john 2 12 i am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake first john 2 28 now little children abide in him So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And then our verse today, 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And again, that term, little children, it's not a belittling term, it's a term of endearment. It expresses John's great age, his, um, 
uh, I guess, uh, wisdom as a spiritual father and his love to them as his children. Right? And he is giving them this instruction, his last instruction. Yes, he'll go on to write Second and Third John, but it's not the same audience. Same author, but a different audience completely. There, these, this is his last sentence to this group, at least inspired sentence that we're aware of. So it is, very, it is loaded and it is uh, just it's very, very rich, as you will see. So what does, what does John instruct his listeners and by application us? What does he instruct us to do? What are we told to do? The instruction here says that we are to guard. And we're just going to walk our way through this in a very simple way. Um, but I think it's very, very powerful when we understand what this verse is commanding us to do. What does the word guard mean to do? Well, if we just turn to an English dictionary, Merriam-Webster explains that to guard means to protect from danger, especially by watchful attention, to make it secure, or to stand at the entrance of as if on guard, or to act as a barrier, to tend to carefully in order to preserve and protect. The Greek term used here means to guard or to keep. And if you use the word keep, it has to be understood in the sense of guarding. So keep and guard are synonyms in, in, in certain contexts. But if we use the word keep, uh, it must be with the understanding that it means to guard. Deadman Hebert explains that the term guard here calls upon the readers to be alert like armed guards ready to repulse every attack. The image is that there is an enemy that is lurking nearby and you need to be on guard. It is not a time for sleeping. It is a time for alertness. Now, when we study a word and how it's used, it's often helpful to look at other ways that the same author used the term. And, and there's a few of those. So in the Gospel of John... The apostle used this term in, in two places, actually in three places. In John 12, 25, um, John tells us this, and it's really, it's Jesus' words, but written through John's pen. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And that word keep is the same Greek word. It's really has the idea of guarding it, protecting it. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it or guard it to eternal life. First John, I'm sorry, in John 12, 47, Jesus says this, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them. Right? Again, same word, guard. It's legitimate to use the word keep, but we must understand that as a keep in a sense of guarding, protecting. He who, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for if I did, I, come to, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay? So the idea is that of keeping. Jesus is encouraging um, that we are to keep his word, and those who do not are, will be judged. He's saying he's not coming to judge them right at this, at this moment, but they stand as judged in the context of that as we went through that. And I think significantly in, in Jesus' prayer in John 17, John 17, verse 12, John 17, verse 12, uh, 12, Jesus says this in his prayer to the Father, while I was with them, I was keeping them. And that word keep is not the same word. It's a slightly different word. It's a word keeping with a sense of watching over. 
It's, it's related, but it means to keep in a sense of watching over. He says, while I was with them, while I was with the disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, uh, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So that use, guarded there, is the same Greek word that we're looking at in 1 John 5, 21. And that is, that is the sense in which we are called to do. Now, other uses of the term guard here, for example, in, in Acts 8, uh, sorry, 28, 16, uh, tells us, uh, Luke tells us, that when, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of the word. There's a literal use of the word. So there was a soldier who was guarding Paul. Right? So Paul was allowed some freedom, but he was still a prisoner. Right? There was someone who was guarding him constantly. Um, we read of a very interesting use of the term in Acts uh, 12. So if you want to turn there a moment, it'll just, uh, I just want to dig into this to help us the sense at which this is, term is used. Acts 12. And I'm just going to give you a little of the context. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 of Acts 12 and make comment when we hit the particular uh, verses, you, uh, words. You can see if you can pick them out. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. So there you you get the sense of it. Four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently uh, by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were sleeping over the prison. The term guard is the noun from the same verb that we're looking at. It has a sense of keeping watch over, uh, keeping in a particular place, and you get it from the context. These were guards who were preventing uh, prisoners from escaping. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side. And he woke up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, again, the same term, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened for them by itself, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, and they were gathered together and were praying. And I just want to jump down in that, in that uh, same context In verse 18, now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. 
And the reason I, I look at that is that the guards were responsible for guarding. Right? And that helps us to understand the serious nature of this command that the Lord gives us. In an earthly sense, if a guard fails to do his duty, he has failed completely and is worthy of death. So I'm not drawing that analogy. Don't do that. I'm just trying to help you to see the seriousness that the Lord calls us to take up this this, uh, instruction of guarding. Now note that this instruction calls you to, to become a guard, right? to guard ourselves. This, this instruction is, is not merely a, an instruction. It is that. But it's more than that. It's a command. It's an urgent command. Right? This is not optional. If you're a believer here this morning, this is a command that your Lord God is commanding you that you become a guard. He wants you to be a, a centennial. Uh, Being in Washington, D.C. this week, we got an opportunity to go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and to witness the the centennials who are guarding the tomb there and to watch the changing of the guard. It's very impressive, but just think about it. That's not just, it it is a sense of show for honor, but it's not showing that they only do that when people are there. They do that seven days a week. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. doesn't matter how cold it gets, how hard it rains, hail. They, they are there. It is their duty to show honor to the unknown soldier. That's the kind of vigilance that the Lord is calling us to. Okay? To be that faithful centennial who does not abandon his post. And I think that's why I find this, in part, I find this so sobering. This is not something we can just do on a once-a-week basis. This is what the Lord calls us to do on a, continually, on a continual basis. Beloved, know that we must be diligent. We can't be slothful or lazy or negligent or disloyal. We can't fall asleep on the job as, as, as believers We just can't. We must take this command very seriously. Notice with me. Let your eyes go back to 1 John 5, 21. We are to guard ourselves from idols. Now, I'm going to say more about this in a moment. But just reflect on the the reflective pronoun there, yourselves. Guard yourselves. It's true that we're called to minister to one another, to care for one another. We are never to be self-focused, and that's not, that's not what this is talking about. But there are things that must be guarded against that only you can guard yourself from. Someone else cannot do it. No level of accountability can do it. Only you can do this. And again, I'll return to that thought in a moment. But notice that this is a call to guard yourself. This instruction calls us, calls you and I to guard ourselves from idols. Now, what does the word idol mean in this context? Well, John, in his brevity, doesn't give us a lot of context. And so it's created a lot of debate. What does the term mean? 
Well, again, if we just turn to a dictionary, Merriam-Webster defines idol as an object of extreme devotion. Right? Think about that. An object of extreme devotion. What would you characterize your devotion to? How would other people look at your life? If they could see a, a panoply of your life, what would they say you're devoted to? An idol could be a representation or a symbol of an object of worship. So we're talking more of a literal, a literal uh, type of idol, an object. Or it could even be a likeness of something. What does the Bible say about uh, an idol? It actually uses the term in a very similar way. And it connects, um, obviously, idols are connected with uh, idolatry. But the Bible uses idols in a very physical sense. For example, in Acts 17, verse 23, tells us this, or Paul does. He says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I, this I proclaim to you. So here the, you have a case where Paul enters a town. There's just so many of these literal idols all around the town. And the people are just worshiping um, all these gods, they're, they're polytheists, they'll worship any kind of god, and they're just afraid to leave a god out. And so they erect this altar and say, just in case we forgot one, we'll put up a special altar and just say, to an unknown god. We know there's one, and we'll just, we'll just label it to an unknown god, just so he isn't offended. And Paul capitalizes on that and says, that god who you do not know, I now declare to you. But, but the, the way that the term idol is used there is in a, is a, is a, is a, a classic sense, the literal sense, that there's a, a statue of wood or gold or whatever that's before them that they are worshiping. And it's a similar sense that the Israelites worshiped the golden calf. You know, the, the Israelites didn't think that literally the golden calf, that, that golden calf that they created was God itself, but it represented God. And if you go back and read the text, which we won't take time to do, you'll, you'll see that. The Israelites made God into their own image, right? which is the epitome of idolatry. But Paul wants us to understand that there really, there really is no such thing as an idol. In 1 Corinthians 8.4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. And he says in that same context that these idols, that demons masquerade as the idols and people are really worshiping demons because there is no such thing as an idol. There are no other gods. There is one true God. But the Bible uses the term idol in a metaphorical sense as well to speak of idols of the heart. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9, and the prophet says this, Then those of you who will escape, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet, Then those of you who, who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after, idol, after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed, for all their abominations. And again, Ezekiel and again, remember Ezekiel uh, is, a, is a prophet who is speaking to a nation already in exile. Ezekiel 14.3, the son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have, put, and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. 
Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all of their idols. In that same chapter, Ezekiel 14, 7 the prophet says this, again, the Lord speaking through the prophet. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me or, or himself. I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. In other words, through his wrath and, and vengeance. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 16. Because they rejected my ordinances, and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. So Ezekiel uses the, the picture of idolatry. The Lord uses the picture of idols to confront heart issues. Not just physical idols, not just physical idolatry, but metaphorical idolatry. Uh, idolatry, the, the, the idols of the heart. So going back to 1 John, how, does, how did John want us to understand this? How did John want his original readers to understand this term idols? Remember that we typically would say, if, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's still, still a helpful guideline here. So there are those who look at the context and say, well, there's nothing here to say that they, they don't see that John gives us any context to, to really see uh, any metaphorical use of the term. So they would hold that this term should be understood literally. And they would say this because John is writing from Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? It was a hotbed of idolatry. It had physical idols set up. There were idol makers whose profession um, their whole livelihood was built around making idols. And those are the ones that so uh, rallied up against Paul and, and, and brought violence against him because of teaching of the, of the gospel. But there are also those who say, well, while there's nothing explicit, John isn't going to be like adding a new thought at the very end of his epistle. It would seem very odd that John would talk specifically just about physical idols at the end of his epistle when he hasn't said anything through the entire epistle about physical idols, literal idols. And so there are many scholars who say that, that John is speaking metaphorically uh, to talk about those things, those idols of the heart which we set up uh, against God, really fitting it into the context from, a, from the standpoint of, of the things that he talked about. I believe that John is intentionally being vague here. He's intentionally, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being broad. Maybe is a better way to put it. He doesn't limit it to a literal idol, though it would certainly include that. I think he also includes the metaphorical idol, the idol of the heart. Viewed from this lens, that idol would be a relationship with God without Jesus Christ, something he addresses. That idol would be a view of Jesus Christ that is less than human or less than fully God. The idol would be a view of sin, uh, in the, that, that sin in the body doesn't really matter. 
Right? John spends quite a bit of time talking about the importance of holiness and the importance of, of seeing a pattern of sin. A pattern of sin shows one is not really of God, not really a child of God. Someone who confesses their sin is, a, is, is a, an indicator that, that is, one has been born of God. One who denies sin is a, is a liar. Right? So those, those kind of indications show us how important sin is. But there were false teachers at the time who were teaching something contrary. And that's why Paul, I mean, John deals with that. An idol could be a view that the love of the brethren isn't important. It just really doesn't matter. But, but John says, oh, so much more. An idol could be a view of accepting, um, that, that saying that the acceptance of the apostles' teaching uh, doesn't, isn't, isn't critical. No, you, you could take it or leave it. It's not really important. So I believe that John has all these things in mind for us when he's talking about idols. It's, it's setting up your own idea of God or your own idea of righteousness as the standard to which you live. Now understand, beloved, that we are called to guard ourselves from idols. And I, and I wanted to explore some of the reasons for this. The, the first reason that I, I want you to see is that God has simply given you this responsibility. He has given you this responsibility. Notice Again, from the, from the context, little children, guard yourselves from idols. It's a command. He's giving you the responsibility. Now, you might say, well, doesn't God guard us? Why would, we, why would he call us to guard ourselves if he is, the one, he is the one guarding us? So I guess I'm glad, glad you asked. We want to affirm thoroughly that the, the scriptural doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. For example, look, look at 1 John 5.18, right there on the same page, most likely on your Bible. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Right, the word keep there is a slightly different Greek term, but it has the same kind of connotation and idea, that he is protecting us. Um, in 1 Peter First Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, tell us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the, in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." So most definitely, Peter is affirming the fact that it's God's power that protects us. It's God's power that, that ultimately brings us to salvation. And, and with this, the Apostle Paul would affirm. Uh, he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, 
tells us that the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So you have the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, the the Apostle Paul, all telling us that it's the Lord who protects us. So if we only looked at these passages, you might think that you you don't have a role. That you, you simply can sit back and let God protect you and you have no role to play. Well, you could except for the fact that I'm pointing out to you that you are commanded to do this. You are commanded. You have a responsibility to do You see, this is another case where there is an intersection of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Where God's uh, sovereignty and man's responsibility intersect, our minds kind of get blown out. And we tend to go to one air or another. But these these are... Theological truths that need to be kept in in tension. And when I say tension, I don't mean that they're tugging at one another. What I mean is that there's a certain amount of tension needed to keep them straight in our mind. If, If we, for example, if we let human responsibility win the tug of war in our mind, if we set it up as a tug of war, if we say human responsibility wins the tug of war, then we fall into the ditch of Arminianism. Which holds that ultimately humans are, are what are, we, our own responsibility is what keeps us saved. And hence, people who hold to this would say that, that you know, if, if that people, believers can lose their salvation. And as I've told you, if we could, we would, right? None of us would be saved. So what I think the scripture clearly teaches. But the scriptures teach that God protect us. He, and he protects us. So there's, that, there's the, the ditch on the one side is Arminianism. But if we ignore human responsibility and just focus on God's sovereignty, and again, if we set this up as a tug of war in our mind, if, if, if God's sovereignty wins the tug of war, then we fall into the ditch of hyper-Calvinism, saying there's nothing we can do. We just, we just sit back and God does everything. Right? We can't do anything. We're just helpless. Well, it's true that we're helpless, but it's not true that can't do something um, because God commands us to do things. See, God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility must not be viewed as a theological tug-of-war in which one side wins and one side loses. These, these truths need to be viewed as tension and, and keeping us straightened theologically. Uh, perhaps a better analogy is to think of these as rails on which the, the train of salvation rides. You need, you need both rails in order for that train to move forward. Every, every analogy breaks down, so don't push that too far. What I'm trying to say is that man is fully accountable and fully responsible. At the same time, God is fully sovereign. And, and in our human frailty, we want to like, well, how does that work? How does it work that man's fully responsible if, man's full, if God's fully sovereign, how does that work? I can't explain it to you, beloved, and the Bible doesn't explain it. These are truths that you must just accept because the Bible teaches them both. The smartest man in the world will never figure this out. Right? It takes God to, to reconcile things that appear to be at odds to us. There are plenty of things in Scripture, plenty of theological truths in Scriptures that seem to be at odds but, but teach us much about man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. 
Just to give you some examples by stirring you up by way of reminder. For example, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul tells us this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's all of God. It's what he's saying. But at the same time, that same author, the Apostle Paul, in Acts 17, 30 and 31, tells us this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So at, at one moment, Paul's saying, it's all of God. You have nothing to brag about. You didn't contribute to this. You did nothing. That faith is even a gift. It's not from you. And at the other hand, he says, you have a responsibility to repent. No, not just the elect. All people everywhere are called to repentance. And that's a genuine repentance. That's not a fake repentance. That's not a repentance where God says, oh, yeah, repent. Oh, by the way, you can't. Kind of gives gives people the Heisman. But what we can affirm is that anybody who does repent does so because of God's working in their life. These things, too, go together. If somebody doesn't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can't. Turn to God and say, well, you didn't call me. You didn't elect me. It's all your fault. No, God will justly say, you are condemned. It was your responsibility to repent and believe, and you did not do that. What about your sanctification? So we talk about election. What about sanctification? Well, in one sense, we could say, Jesus prays for your sanctification. He prayed to his father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he originally prayed that for his disciples at the end of that prayer. He says, and I pray this not only for these, but those who will believe, who will believe in my name through their testimony. In other words, that's for you. So if Jesus prays for something, praying for the father to do it, it's the father's responsibility to work it out. We could simply say back, well, Jesus prayed for it. Now we'll just trust him to work it out. I don't have to do anything. So it's of God. And yet... The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about justification there. He's talking about sanctification. You have a responsibility to play and sanctify in your own life. Even though you're completely dependent upon God. Because Paul draws this out. It's beautifully balanced here. He says, work out your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So if it wasn't for God's work in you, your, your efforts at growing in holiness and in sanctification would be uh, totally wasted. But because he is at work in your life, they're not wasted. Remember, these biblical truths must be embraced We can't just look at one and say, well, I can understand that, but I can't understand this other one, so I lean towards the one I more fully understand, be that God's sovereignty or man's responsibility, or some would call it free will of man. I don't like the term free will because we're born slaves to sin, and not really, we don't have a free will. We have a will that's enslaved to sin. So hence, I don't like that term. But we have a responsibility. We we do have choices that the Lord allows us to make. So bring this back to 1 John. What is he telling us? On the one hand, God is is the one who protects you. Ultimately, he keeps you from sin. He keeps you from the evil one. And yet at the same time, you have a responsibility to guard yourself. 
So you must guard yourself in complete dependency, knowing that you're dependent upon God. So it's you're working with God in your own life. God wants to protect you, is protecting you, and he's calling you to work with him in that protection. It becomes an instrument of God's protection. So the first reason for this command is just simply that God has given you the responsibility. You just need to do it. But, but secondly, and I'll, I'll speed up here just a little bit. The second reason is that you must understand that as a believer, and I'm going to speak to believers a minute, because this command is addressed to believers, your unredeemed flesh gravitates towards idolatry. God has given you this command because your unredeemed flesh gravitates towards idolatry. Mine does too. I'm not out of this either. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. About idolatry, Spurgeon said this. It is the one easily besetting sin of our nature to turn aside from the living God and to make unto ourselves idols in some fashion or another. For the essence of idolatry is this, to love anything better than God, to trust anything more than God, to wish to have a God other than we have, or to have some signs and wonders by which we may see Him, some outward symbol or manifestation that can be seen with the eye or heard with the ear, rather than rest in an invisible God and believe the faithful promise of Him whom I hath not seen or ear heard. Unquote. Beloved, a propensity of our heart is that it created an idol. When we talk about idols, we need not think about just physical idols. At its essence, sin is idolatry. This is what was told to Saul when he, he did not obey the Lord. He, he thought he was going to offer the Lord a, a greater sacrifice by keeping alive things the Lord told him to slaughter. But Samuel told him this. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. The Lord has strong words to, to guard us from idols. In 1 Corinthians 10, just turn there a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, you need to listen or as I read or follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 10, being at verse 1. Now, I'm going to read the larger verses because I want you to see the context between Sin and idolatry. Idolatry, in a sense, is one particular sin, but it's also all-encompassing to be spoken of all sin. So I'll just begin reading in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as an example, as examples for us, so that we would not crave the evil things as they also crave. Notice see how Paul describes this. That we would not crave the evil things they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and sit up to play. So when Paul's saying that, 
He said, do not be idolaters. He's not saying don't worship a golden calf. Of course that's included. But look what he describes. The people sat down to eat and drink in a gluttonous fashion, or drunkenness, and they stood up to play, which is, a, which is a term used to talk about sexual immorality. He says in verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. You see how he's turned this? Now he's just talking about sin in general. He's listed a few examples, but he's just talking about sin in general. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So he starts talking about idolatry and he ends with idolatry and he talks more about some of the food later on that's, that's offered to idols. But he, he is using the term idolatry in a sense just talking about sin. So in its essence, sin at, our, at, a, at a core is idolatry. He writes something similar. He uses the same kind of analogy in, in, in Galatians 5 and talk about the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, it's not an exhaustive list. But notice idolatry is there. And that's, that should not just be limited to physical, literal idolatry. In, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Consider... Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, he's not just calling greed idolatry. He's talking all those things as idolatry. All these things amount to idolatry. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. With this, the Apostle Peter would agree. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, 1 Peter 4, 3, he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable, uh, abominable idolatries. It's time to be done with all that. As believers. So why does God give us the command? One, we have a responsibility to carry out and to work with the Lord in our protection. Two, we need to guard against our own flesh because our unredeemed flesh gravitates towards idolatry. And if we do not recognize this, we will be in grave danger. Just like soldiers when they fall asleep at the guard are in grave danger of being killed. So, how are we to guard ourselves from idols? How are we to guard? And I'm just going to give you a kind of a summary of this. Obviously, John doesn't deal with this in, in, his, in his epistle. And I, I would answer and say, well, in a sense, he has already given them the answers of how to do this. Right? How to guard themselves by holding to the truth, which is my first point. Stay close to the light of God's word. 
Stay close to the light of God's word. Read God's word, not as, oh, I got to do this today. That's how I did it earlier when I was an unbeliever, but I, but I was churched enough to know that Christians read their Bible, and so I read my Bible, and, and I kind of felt guilty if I didn't read my Bible. Don't read it like that. Read it to feed your soul. Right? You haven't done your job if you just read the word of God for the day. Right? Read it to understand. Read it as an act of worship. Read it from the sense of knowing that there's something in the scripture that you need today to transform your mind. Otherwise, we will be conformed to the world. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul used that analogy. Conformity to the world versus being transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told that that the word is the instrument of sanctification. Thy word is truth, and, and the Lord will use his truth to sanctify us. The Lord's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Cling to the word of God. If you make the word of God your home, then you will help guard your, yourself from idols. Speaking of guarding, the second thing I want to mention is not only staying close to the word of God, but guarding your own heart. Guarding your own heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 tells us to watch over your heart with all diligence for for from it flow the springs of life. Guarding the things that you love. Guarding the things that, that tug at your allegiance or tug allegiance away from the Lord. This is why the Lord says, guard yourselves from idols. Because no one else can do this for you. No one else can do this for you. I can, as your pastor, look at you and know the things that you struggle with in your heart. I wish I could, but I cannot. Only you and the Lord know those things that pull at your heart, be they sexual immorality, be it just, just a disobedience and lack of submission to God and to others that the Lord has placed in authority over you. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's wealth that you're pursuing. Remember, the Lord says that we cannot worship God and and money as well. You could fit that in anything. The Lord doesn't accept a, a worship that is divided. That doesn't honor Him. He wants our whole and completed, undivided worship of Him. So guard your heart. And speaking of that, pray. Pray and ask the Lord to help you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's, that's the sum of it. Do you want to guard your heart Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will never fall to idolatry. But because our propensity is not to love God that way, we must work towards that and pray towards that, that God would strengthen your love for Him. And beloved, I would add to that this. So stay close to the Word of God. Guard your heart. Pray that God would help you to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Train yourself to trust what you don't understand from his word. Train yourself to trust what you don't understand from his word. The human tendency is to doubt God. When you can't understand it, to doubt him. But, but the Lord really commands us and commands us to be steadfast. And that's really what we're talking about. Be steadfast. On God's word. Don't doubt God's word. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says. The steadfast of mind. You will keep in perfect peace. Because he trusts in you. 
Even when you don't understand, you trust God, knowing that, that, that though you don't have the answers, He does and He'll work it out for your good and for His glory. The, the New Testament is full of, of verses that command us to be steadfast and encourage us to be steadfast. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In Colossians 1, 11, We are to be strengthened with power, as Paul's prayer, strengthened with power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, if you, if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under, him, of, under heaven, and of, I which, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He is encouraging them and praying for them to be steadfast and immovable. The, he just continues in 2 Thessalonians 3.5. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. That, that's a steadfast hope. Again, Train yourself to trust what you don't understand. 2 Peter 3.17 You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So you see how the, the, the idea of being steadfast or trusting goes along with the idea of guarding yourself from idols and guarding from, from those things that are opposed to, to scriptural teaching. And, and to all these, I would add this last Instruction that is to put yourself within the community of a faithful local church. So keep yourself close to the Word of God, guard your heart, pray that God would help you to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Train yourself to trust God when you don't understand Him, and put yourself within the community of a faithful local church. You need other believers, you need other believers. God has commanded us to minister to one another. And, and I won't belabor this too much, but I I'll, I'll, I'll want to read to you Ephesians chapter 4, which is very clear on how we minister to one another. And if you are not within a local church and committed to that church and involved with that church, this isn't happening and it's stunting your own spiritual growth and it's weakening and, and keeping you vulnerable uh, to idols that you need to be on guard against. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 11, tells us this. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, listen, to the building up of the body of Christ. So the the command there is not for the pastors and the teachers to do all the ministry. The the command there is that God, or the idea is that, that the Lord gave pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So my job is to equip you. Your job is to carry out the ministry. What ministry? It's not necessarily the ministry that goes on on Sunday morning. It's the ministry to one another. Listen to what, what goes on from that. He says, he says that for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all, all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now listen, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Your ministry is absolutely essential to this church functioning the way that God intends. Your ministry to one another is needed to help others mature and help others grow. But it's also you need others' ministry in your lives to help you grow. If you become that lone ranger, you will become the dead ranger. Christianity isn't a lone ranger salvation. It is a faith that we walk together in Christ. We are to be accountable to one another. And I'll add to that, you need godly leaders who watch over your souls. You need that. The Lord commands you to submit and to obey to your leaders. Godly leaders who keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. If you're just off on your own and not part of a local church, you have no watchman. You fall. Who picks you up? You sin. Who comes after you? Who's going to come after you? tell you the thing that you're doing, that you love to do is, is damning to your soul and shipwrecking your life. These things we need. We need each other, beloved. And you're here on Sunday morning, so I'm speaking to you, and, and in a sense you're here, so you hear the message. But there are some who will hear the message later who aren't here, by choice. Not because they don't want to be. And they're the ones that need to hear that message. But as you are here, know that's one of the reasons why you must be part. Not just, not just here on Sunday morning. You know I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about ministering to one another. With, involved in, in body life. These things are needed, beloved, to guard yourself from idols. And, and one of the reasons I found this so sobering is the more I learned about idolatry, the more I learned how much of it still applies to me. And that's very sobering. So please, take seriously John's words to guard yourselves from idols. And that, in that one phrase, he, he summarizes his entire epistle. To guard ourselves from the things that the world would teach us or other so-called Christians would teach us. And to embrace only biblical truth and the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, thank you for being a God who saves, the God who redeems, the God who protects, and the God who gives us instructions. Lord God, help us to cherish your word, to hear these words with understanding and apply them to our lives. Let us, let us not be those who hear and, and quickly forget, letting it go in one ear and out the other. Lord, cause your people who are here this morning, who are called by your name, to take up the guard, to guard themselves and where they have failed, Lord God. And there may be here some this morning who, who realize they've totally blown it. They failed. Lord, I just ask that you bring about repentance in their lives. You bring about confession of sin and that you would help them, Lord God, by forgiving their sins and cleansing them from all unrighteousness. 
and helping them to fix their eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of their salvation. And that you would help them to run the race with endurance, to be vigilant, to be on guard, to protect themselves, Lord God, in cooperation with your work in their lives for your glory. Lord, we just uh, ask that you bring fruit from your word in our lives. For the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we ask this and for his glory.